You are listening to Rabbi Arya Wolby of Torch in Houston, Texas. This is the Thinking Talmudist Podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to the Thinking Talmudist. Good afternoon. It is so wonderful to be here. I'd like to dedicate today's Talmud class to the loving memory of Yaakov Levi Yosef ben Yehuda Aryeh of blessed memory. May his neshama have an aliyah. It was dedicated by his brother, uh, a dear friend of mine, uh, Yona and Dvor Nathan. And may everything that we learn, all the inspiration that we have today, be in the memory and the aliyah of the neshama of Yaakov Levi Yosef ben Yehuda Aryeh. Last week, we discussed the responsibilities that the nations of the world have, that they're going to be held accountable for their actions or inactions on behalf of the Jewish people. Now, what's clear and what we need to crystallize for ourselves is the idea that we don't have a free ride either. We don't have a free ride. We're going to be held accountable as well if we don't perform our responsibilities. So so before we start looking at the nations of the world and continuing this Talmud in Tractate Avodah Zarah 3a, before we start understanding how the nations of the world are going to be held accountable, we need to realize that we are going to also be held accountable if we don't live up to our expectations, the expectations that the Almighty has set forth in his Torah. So the responsibility is not only on the nations of the world. Oh, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? God put you into this world to do certain things. It's also going to be, and most importantly, us. We are held accountable if we fall short of our responsibilities, of our duties. So last week we mentioned that the nations of the world are going to be held accountable. We brought the kingdom of Rome. We brought the kingdom of Persia, where they're going to be held accountable, where God's going to say, what did you do for the world? What did you do for the Jewish people? They were like, what do you mean? We made the marketplaces. God says, no, you didn't make the marketplaces to help the Jews. You made marketplaces so that you can solicit inappropriate behavior. Why did you do, why did you build bridges? You build bridges so that you can collect taxes. Bridgegate, i.e. the New York Port Authority. Why, why all of the, the you, did it, you did it for your own reasons. You didn't do it. Don't say that you did it to help the Jew. And you're going to be held, we, the world is going to be held accountable. So now the Talmud we left off last week says that, The nations of the world are also going to be held accountable whether or not they fulfill the seven Noahide laws. The seven Noahide laws are not Jewish exclusive. They are world exclusive. Every single human being is obligated to the seven Noahide laws. We mentioned last week that the Rambam says that if someone wants to accept the seven laws and be among the righteous of the nations that follow the seven Noahide laws, they need to declare, because one of them is that I'm not going to have an idol, I'm not going to worship idolatry. So what is one needing to do? They need to denounce any idol and idol worship and declare that their only God is Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. Hashem, our God, Hashem is one. That's it. And then they need to accept upon themselves the seven Noahide laws, and then they are ready, ready to roll. 
So go, go live a good life. And by the way, as long as you eat food that was slaughtered prior, the nations of the world don't have an obligation to eat kosher. They can eat shellfish. They can eat all of those things. But it has to be after the animal was slaughtered. They can't just take the leg off a pig, the nations of the world, and throw it on the grill. You've got a, the animal has to be put to death first, and then it can be uh, utilized as food as for consumption. So the Gemara says, and from where do we know that the Gentiles do not observe the seven Noachad laws? Because if you remember, the Talmud says that really they're going to they're gonna be punished because they really didn't observe it anyway. They got the seven Noachad laws and they, they didn't observe it anyway. So the Gemara says, how do you know that they did not observe it? So the Gemara answers, Rev. Yosef taught the following brysa. The verse states, he stood and measured out the land, he saw and dispersed the nations. Myra, oh, what did he see? He saw. He saw the seven commandments that the descendants of Noah had accepted upon themselves, but did not observe. Since they did not observe them, Ahmad since they did not observe them, he stood and released the commandments from them, meaning they are no longer obligated to heed the Noahide laws altogether. The Gemara asks in wonder, what are you talking about? Itgure itgur. Have they then benefited by their indiscretions? You're telling them, basically, you're not going to follow my instructions. I'll just erase the laws. Right? This is not the, the Democrat Party. I mean, this is, you're talking about, this is like, If so, we find a case where a sinner has profited through his transgressions. You can cause, you can do a crime and not be held accountable because we just changed the laws so that it, we circumvent the law breaking, meaning we're saying, oh, they're not going to observe the seven Ahad laws anyway, so they're not obligated to it. That's, that, that's not the way things work. The Gemara explains the Bryce's statement. Omar Mar Bere de Ravino, Mar the son of Ravino said, he says, no, this is what the Bryce means to say. God decreed that even if the descendants of Noah fulfilled the commandments, they do not receive reward for obeying them. It means even if they do observe, they still don't get the reward. What's the obvious question? Huh? Right? Huh? Right? What do you mean they don't receive the reward? They did it. They should receive the reward. The Gemara objects to the notion that Noahides do not receive reward for adhering to the Noahide code. Velo. But is it true that they do not receive reward? Vatanya. It was taught in a Brysa. Reb Meir used to say, From where do we know that even an idol worshiper who has occupied his time studying Torah is like the high priest? Talmud Lomar brings a verse from the Torah that says, The verse states, my laws and my decrees which man shall carry out and by which he shall live. It doesn't say Jew. It says man. Man refers to anyone. 
Kohanim, Levim, V'Yisraelim, Lo Nemar. It doesn't specify only the Kohanim, the Levites, or the priests, the Levites, or the Israelites. Ela Adam. It says man. What does it mean when it says man? From here you learn, From here we learn that even a Gentile who studies Torah is considered holy and righteous like the high priest in the temple. Apparently, even idolaters do receive reward for keeping the seven Noahide laws. The Gemara therefore answers, so that's the end, that's a question, right? So what are you telling me that they don't get reward? Ella, Lomarlach, rather the Brysa means to tell you, They do not receive reward like one who performs a precept, having been commanded to do so. But rather they receive lesser reward like one who performs a precept without having been commanded to do so. Let me let me bring a scenario. Doctor, you're going to love this scenario. How many times do, do parents come to you with their children and they say, we ask our son to help bring in the groceries from the, sto- from the car and he, he doesn't want to help. But when the neighbor pulls up, they're there to help the neighbor bring their groceries in. They're ready to help everyone else, but not when they're asked by us. The Talmud tells us Something fundamental about human psychology. When you're asked or commanded to do something, you have less desire to do it. But when you're a hero for volunteering to do it, everyone's ready to do it. This is the Talmud. The Talmud says, Gadol It is greater when someone is obligated to do something and they fulfill it nonetheless, it's far greater when they do it like that under obligation than when someone is just volunteering to do it. Okay? It's a very big principle. Now, let's apply it to ourselves. We are commanded by the Almighty to observe the Torah. And we observe the Torah, so the reward is very great because you're commanded to do it and you do it. But the nations of the world are not commanded to observe it. And yet they observe it. Well, that's easy. Oh, well, you right. I- imagine this, okay? The guy who's paid to go onto the football field and play football may not feel the desire to do so. Are you getting paid all this money? Yeah, I know, but I have to. I don't want to do what I have to. Right? But if they came to any of us, would you mind just step in, just get on the field and play? Like, sure, me, of course. Like, you know, we'll feel like a hero. It's easy for someone to do something when they're not commanded to do it. And therefore, the nations of the world, when they're not commanded to fulfill the Torah, when they're not commanded to learn the Torah, their reward is not going to be as great as the children of Israel who are commanded and are obligated to learn and fulfill the Torah when they do so. So the Talmud now concludes and says, One who performs a precept, having been commanded to do so, is far greater than one who performs a precept without having been commanded to do so. The Yetzirah, 
The commentaries explain, strives with particular zeal to thwart one who performs a mitzvah to which he is obligated. As a result, one who performs a mitzvah to which he is obligated must expend greater effort than one who does so voluntarily. And the former, therefore, receives greater reward. It's very difficult. You have to do something. You don't want to do it. You volunteer. It's easier. The question is how to get our children to do the things they need to do when we tell them. So there's many ways that we can motivate our children. We can make it exciting for them to do it. But it's not always going to be exciting. Children shouldn't only be doing things that their parents ask them to do because it's exciting. Parents should learn to impart responsibility to their children. I find that today's generation where we have so much luxury, so much the children grow up today with the things we couldn't imagine, we couldn't imagine in our lives having when we were children. You know, I just changed phone plans a few weeks ago. I changed from one service to another service. Everything just trans- transferred everything over. Okay, they upgraded all the phones on our plan. Very nice. But I realized that it's really inferior service. The, the, the calls don't go through smoothly. Either I have, I've never had this before. My previous carrier where, you know, I'm standing someplace. I just, nobody can hear me. I'm like, I'm making a phone and nobody hears me. What's going on? Why doesn't anybody hear me? And it, 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 it got frustrating. And I decided that I'm not going, I had a, still the period of time that I can change back to my previous carrier. I said, I'm not going to. Not going to. Why? On principle. On principle, I'm not. Why not? Your phone service of the luxury that we have today with 5G plus doesn't have to be perfect. We can still live in a world where we roll up our windows manually. Not everything has to be so perfect. And I said, on principle, I'm not transferring out of the inferior uh, service. I'm not going to say which company it is. I don't want to get sued. All of our millions of viewers, I don't need them to come after me now that I'm ruining their... But it's intentional that we're li- we're living in a world today where the kids grow up. We're literally at their fingertips. You know where my... I, I was just thinking about this not long ago. I mentioned this in class as well. Do you know where my daughter, who's now a year and a half old, do you know where she thinks bananas come from? They come from the delivery bag that comes to the front of the house. They have no idea that things grow in a tree, not where the bananas or the oranges come from. They don't have an idea that most people have to go to the supermarket to purchase and to pick beautiful apples and 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 the uh, pears and whatever other fruits and vegetables we buy. The fact that there is such plenty, such an abundance of food, it's not something to be taken lightly. But our children don't understand. They open up the refrigerator and it's it's filled with fruits and vegetables. And it's filled with, filled with yogurts and 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 milks and whatever they need. They don't realize 
And that's our job as parents to instill values into our children so they can appreciate and so that they can be happy people. Because when children live a life that they don't have gratitude and appreciation for what is in their life, they become miserable. Show me a person who is grateful, I will show you a person who's happy. Show me a person who's ingrateful, I will show you someone who's miserable. This is the rule of life. The rule of life, and it doesn't help if one grows up in a, in a wealthier home, in a poorer home, more privileged, less privileged. It's, it's irrelevant. If we don't grow up with the values of gratitude, we won't be happy people. Our sages tell us that the purpose of all of prayer is to give gratitude to God. When we give gratitude and give thanks to Hashem, we're happy. Like, wow, I'm going to kvetch that my electricity is off for a day because of construction, because of repairs down the road. I have eyes I can see. Hashem gave me the ability to eat and to drink and to touch and to smile and to hear beautiful music and to walk places. It's the greatest gifts in the world. But we lose sight of it and we take it for granted. And when we we aren't grateful, we aren't happy. So the Talmud here is telling us that the nations of the world don't necessarily receive the same type of reward as the Jewish people when they study Torah and observe the Torah because they're not commanded to do so. So the challenge for them doing so is not as great. When you're commanded to do something, it's much more challenging. At any rate, this price had demonstrated that the nations were delinquent in their performance of the Noahide laws. Their petition that had they been given the Torah, they would have performed its precepts, is thus denied. They therefore submit a different appeal. So they try to say, well, if we would have given us the Torah, we would have accepted and we would have fulfilled it. God says, look, you were given the seven Ahide laws and you did a miserable job at that. So what's their argument now? Rather, this is what the idolaters will say to the Holy One to the Almighty God, creator of heaven and earth, Ribbonu Shalala, master of the universe, as to the Jews who received the Torah, how have they observed its precepts? What evidence is there that they were meticulous in the observance of the Torah? The Almighty says, what do you mean? I give testimony that they have indeed observed the entire Torah. And the nations argue, that this testimony is inadmissible on the following grounds. Omrim Lufanov, they say before Hashem, Don't we know that a father does not give testimony about his son? He's not trusted. A father can't come to court and say, I testify about my son. No. Of course not. And the Jews are regarded to you as a son, as sons. The verse in the Torah states. My father, my firstborn son, Israel, the Jewish people. So the argument is accepted. And God therefore introduces other witnesses to testify about Israel's virtue. 
God says, you know what? There's someone else who can give testimony about the Jewish people's fulfillment and commitment and observance of the Torah. The Almighty says to them, The heavens and the earth will testify about Israel. That they have fulfilled the entire Torah. The nations argue, Whoa, such a testimony is not either admissible. Why? Omer and they say in front of the Almighty, Rabboni Shalala, Master of the Universe, Shemayim Va'aretz, Nogen Be'edusan. The heavens and the earth have self-interest involved here. They're invalid as witnesses. Why? Shenemer, Imlo Barasi, Yomer Valalu, Chuka Shemayim Va'aretz, Lo Samti. Because God says, if not for my covenant of day and night, the statutes of heaven and earth, I would not have established. This verse indicates that the very existence of heaven and earth was contingent on Israel's acceptance of the Torah. So what is that called in court? Quid pro quo, where you have one thing dependent on another thing. So now, the Jewish people, you're saying, are going to have testimony from the heaven and earth, but the heaven and earth know that they would not be created if the Torah wasn't accepted by the Jewish people. So if they don't give good testimony, they're done. So how do you expect to allow, how do you expect us, say the nations of the world, to accept their testimony? The Gemara cites a second source that the existence of the world depends on the Torah's study, right? Not only that verse, the Amr Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish, Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish brings another verse. My what is the meaning of the verse that states, and it was evening and it was morning, the sixth day. Why do I need the extra letter hey, ha shi shi, the sixth day? From here we see that God stipulated a condition into the work of creation, where God says, the Omar, Im if the Jewish people accept my Torah, then fine, you will endure. However, if they do not accept my Torah, I will return you to astonishing emptiness, to a total abyss, to a total nothingness. So that's proof that everything is dependent on the Jewish people receiving the Torah. So if they were now to give testimony against the Jewish people's observance of the Torah, they're gone. Yeah, no pressure at all. The third teaching in the same vein, and now we bring a proof from Chizkiah who expressed, namely, from heaven you made judgment, the Torah, the Torah is called judgment, you made judgment heard, the earth became afraid and grew calm. If it became afraid, why did it later grow calm? If it was afraid, it shouldn't be calm, it should be afraid. If it be, grew calm, why was it afraid? So either one, rather at first, before Israel accepted the Torah, the earth was afraid. But in the end, it grew calm. 
after the Jewish people accepted the Torah. So all the aforementioned teachings convey that the very existence of heaven and earth was contingent on Israel's acceptance of the Torah. They therefore are beholden to Israel and invalid to testify about Israel's observance of the Torah, who then who then can submit acceptable testimony that they have observed the Torah. So the Gemara concludes now, Amr Lehem HaKadosh Baruch this to, again, to the nations of the world. The nations of the world are asking God, prove to us that the Jewish people even accepted, uh, fulfilled the Torah. So Hashem answers to the nations, Mikem Yovo, from among you yourselves, witnesses will come forth. And they will testify, you, the nations of the world, will testify about the Jews that they have indeed observed the entire Torah. Yavo Nimrod Vyaid Bavram. Nimrod, King Nimrod, will come and testify about the patriarch Abraham. Shalo of Adavodaskachov that he did not worship idolatry. Yavo Lavon Vyaid Biakov and Laban will the father in law of Jacob, he will come and testify about Jacob. Shalo Nechshad al Gezel, that he did not steal anything from him. Tobo Ashis Potifera. Vitoid be Yosef, and the wife of Potiphar will give testimony about Joseph, that he did not commit adultery. Nebuchadnezzar will come and testify about Hananya, Mishal, and that they did not bow down to the image. Darius will come and testify about Daniel, that he did not cease from prayer. Bildad the Shuchite, Zophar the Naamite, Eliphaz the Temanite, the Yemenite, and Eliyahu, the son of Brachel, the Buzite, they will come via Idubem Yisrael and they will testify about the Jews. Shekiyamu is called HaTorah Kula, that they observe the entire Torah. Shenemar Yitnu Edeim V'Yitzdoku, as the verse states in Isaiah. Let them bring their witnesses and they will be vindicated. The nations of the world are going to testify. They're going to say, yes, when we brought them to the concentration camps, they recited the Shema. I was when I was in Auschwitz, when I was in Birkenau, we were told that the German soldiers knew the Shema by heart. Because they heard thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of times the Jewish people screaming the Shema. You know who's going to give testimony? Those guards. Those guards are going to say these Jews never left their faith. When they tried to burn down their synagogues and they saw that there were Jews sitting there learning at the candlelight, those same people are going to give testimony saying, yes, the Jews observed the Torah. They learned the Torah. They didn't stop from their commitment to the Torah. The nations still refu- refuse to capitulate. Amrulafanov. The nations will then say to Hashem, Ribona Shalolam, Master of the Universe, 
Give the Torah to us anew and we will observe its precepts. We're going to give it to you. We're going to do it. So what do the heavens respond? Omar, the Almighty, says to them, Shotim fools of the world. Whoever toils on the eve of Shabbos on Friday will eat on Shabbos itself. He who did not toil prior to Shabbos, from where will he eat on Shabbos? This parable is a very important parable. You know, they say that when you go on the cruise, whatever's on that cruise liner is what's on the cruise liner. If you come on the boat, you come onto the ship at Galveston, you're going away for three weeks on your on your on your uh, cruise, and as the you hear the big horns of the ship departing from the dock, you're like, oh, whoa, 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 whoa! I left my sunglasses in the car. I'm sorry. Whatever's on the ship is on the ship, and whatever's not is not. Yeah, I left my tuna fish sandwich. I can't believe it. Yeah, in three weeks, you're going to come back to a really smelly car. (laughs) Whatever's on the boat is on the boat. When Shabbos kicks in every week, our cruise liner departs. We don't cook anymore. We don't turn on the lights. We don't turn off the lights. What is, is we're on a cruise now. For the next 25 hours, nothing changes. We're we're not doing, we're being. We're completely, this is a time where we're completely committed every single week in our relationship with God. You prepare before Shabbos, you'll have delicious food on Shabbos. You don't prepare before Shabbos, you're out of luck, buddy. It's going to be tough. The nations of the world now come to God and say, hey, give us the Torah. Let's start all over again. God says that's not the way it works. All the same, I will accede to your request and test whether you really would have observed the Torah. And God says, you know what? I'm going to give you a chance. I'm going to give you a chance. Mitzvah kala yeshli. I have a very, very easy mitzvah for you. Visukah shema. The mitzvah of sukkah. You'll observe the mitzvah of sukkah, and if you observe it perfectly, then it'll be a sign that you indeed observed, you would have observed the entire Torah. And then we have an argument. Go perform this mitzvah, go build a sukkah, and be in the sukkah. The Gemara now interrupts the teaching to ask, says, But how can Hashem say that he gives the nations another chance? That which I command you, the verse says, I command you today to perform them. Today to perform them. Not tomorrow to perform them. Not meaning today, meaning this world, not world to come. Tomorrow means the world to come. Today was made to do them. This world was made to do them. 
today is not made for receiving their reward. So why then does God give the nations a second chance in the world to come? That the, you know, if we, after we check out, after 120 great years on this world, in this world, the place called today, we get to the tomorrow. We get to the world to come. And God says, well, <clears throat> what have you done? And you say, well, I, I amassed all this wealth, but I was planning to give it to charity. But if you just gave me another minute, I would give it. If you, I was about to sign the check. You know what I mean? If you, you just torch, torch, I just didn't fill out. I didn't sign the check. I'm sorry. If you don't do it today, you don't have tomorrow. But God's going to make an exception for the nations of the world. He's going to make an exception that they abuse their opportunity in this world. But God's going to give them another chance in the world to come. That's so unfair. How could that be? That God says, I'm going to give the nations of the world another opportunity. So the Gemara answers, Rather, God gives them this chance because the Holy One, blessed is He, does not seek excuses to deal harshly with His creations. On the contrary, he seeks to provide them with ways to be successful. Hashem wants us to be successful. And this is one of the indications that we know. There are hundreds of them, one of the many, that Hashem only wants good for us. Hashem only wants... This is the nations of the world who have, who have inflicted the Jewish people with the most terrible, devastating harm. God still says, you know what? I'll give you one more chance. One, one more chance. Because God is mole rachamim. God is full of mercy. Full of mercy. God says, I'm going to give one more chance. So the Gemara asks, Am I karele mitzvah kala? Why does God refer to the sukkah as an easy mitzvah? The Gemara answers, Mishum kis, because its performance does not involve a hefty price financially. It doesn't cost a lot to have a sukkah. So returning to the teaching, immediately each of the citizens of the nations of the world takes the opportunity and goes to construct a sukkah at the roof of their home. They all go up onto their porches, onto their rooftops, and they all build beautiful sukkahs. Wow. And God pierces them with the heat of the blazing sun in the Tammuz, in the summer season. Whereupon each and every one of the nation kicks his sukkah and leaves it. As it states, let us cut their cord and cast off their ropes. So what happens? The nations of the world say, okay, challenge accepted. They build their sukkah. God, it's regular summertime, which is when, by the way, when we have our sukkot is also summertime. Try the Walby sukkah in September or October. And on most years, you're like a, uh, a shish kebab rolling there. It is so hot. You're sweating. It's not exactly so pleasant. God does the same for the nations of the world. What do they do? They leave the sukkah, but they don't just leave the sukkah. They kick the sukkah on their way out. 
So the Gemara asks, Makdir, does God really pierce them with the sun's heat? Didn't you just say that the Almighty does not seek excuses to deal harshly with his creations? The Gemara writes over here, you're making it extra hot for them. Why? Let it just be the observance of Sukkot. Why do you need to make it extra hot like it is for everyone else? The Gemara says, Mishum di Yisrael nami zemni. Making the blazing sun beat down upon the nations was a fear trial of the nation's dedications. For the Jews also must face the trial in some years, as at times it happens that the Tammuz season extends until the festival, until Sukkot. And the Jews too experience discomfort when performing the mitzvah of Sukkah due to the heat of the sun. Yet, they don't act as the nations did. I will just tell you that in 1996, in 
There is never a laughter in the presence of the Holy One except for that one day alone. It's going to be funny. It's going to be funny how the nations of the world thought that they can survive. And you think of all of the tragedies that befell the Jewish people, all the terrible, terrible challenges that we've experienced throughout our history. Do you see us complaining? Do you see us saying, oh, we can't put tzitzis on. We can't put tefillin on. We can't keep Shabbos. We can't keep kosher. We can't fulfill the laws of modesty. Oh, we can't light Shabbos candles. Oh, all do you know that there are villages in Mexico today? I met someone from there. He told me, and this is part of the Anusim, those who left, who fled from the Spanish Inquisition, and suspected of being Jews still today, today because we don't know, we don't have a direct link of their heritage. They're asked by a bona fide bet din, a Jewish court, to reconvert to Judaism. But they told me that they, women come in every Friday evening and in the closets, they light two candles. They light two candles in the closet. And they don't even know why they do it. By sunset, every Friday, the women light the candles. And they don't know why, but the women, before they're together with their husbands, after their period, they go to the river. And they have no idea why. This is what they do. Well, these are the Jewish laws. This is what the Torah teaches us. Unfortunately, many went astray over the years, but that's our job today to inspire ourselves and to get back on course, each and every one of us, to see in what way can I excel in my relationship with Hashem. Today, meaning in this world, before we check out and we're at the tomorrow, to make it real and to not push it away, kick at it and say, ah, I'm disgusted by it. I'm not interested in it. But rather to take the opportunity that we have today, every single day, maximize it and make it a day that's special in our relationship with Hashem. Hashem should bless us, each and every one of us, whether we're Jewish, whether we're not Jewish, whether we're converts, whether we're not converts, to utilize the time we have in this world to do the right thing. And everybody can ask their spiritual leader, their mentor, their guide, in what way can I serve Hashem? Teach me the Torah. Teach me what God put me in this world for. And we should all, hopefully, together, grow in our connection with Hashem every day of our lives. Amen. Have a great Shabbos. That's an excellent question. How can you serve Hashem? Number one, you're doing it right now. You're learning Torah and you're committed and dedicated. I know that even in the most challenging of times, you're watching the video if you can't. You're doing everything you can as a couple, as individuals, to make sure you, you maintain your connection to Judaism. And that's the most important thing, is learning Torah. The second is, every day, think of what way can I advance my relationship with Hashem. If it's praying a little bit, if it's performing another mitzvah, if it's doing another thing that's different from what I used to do, to advance my relationship with Hashem. 
and very, very, very microscopic steps because big steps, we fall. Small, small, teeny little steps. That's my recommendation. Keep it up. You've been listening to Rabbi Arya Wolby on a podcast produced by Torch, the Torah Outreach Resource Center of Houston. We need you. We need partners. Please help sponsor an episode so we can continue to produce more quality Jewish content for our listeners around the globe. Please visit torchweb.org to donate and partner with us on this incredible endeavor.